Welcome to Grit, Guts, and Determination, the Leadville Race Series podcast. I'm your host, Cole Clover, son of race founder, Ken Clover. And I'm going to take you on a journey of rich storytelling through our now 40-year rich history. And I invite you to sit back and listen to these eccentric stories. But don't forget to take a few notes along the way because these eccentric stories are going to have tricks and tips to get you to that line come summer. So sit back, enjoy, and then we'll see you at home. We'll see you in Leadville. Well, Leadville family, most of our guests uh, find it challenging enough to run 100 miles in the Rocky Mountains. Today's guest has not only done that, he's also run across America. But if those challenges are not monumental enough, this gentleman has also done so legally blind. Today, I have very special guest with me, Jason Romero. So sit back and get your listening ears on because Jason's going to tell us a thing or two about digging deep in a way you've never even considered. We have a saying in Leadville, you don't find Leadville, Leadville finds you. So Jason, when did Leadville find you? Uh, Found me in 2010. And uh, I happened to be actually at a crossroads in my life. I had just moved back to Colorado from six years in Puerto Rico. And I was going through a divorce. And it was very traumatic for me. Split up of my family, had three kids. And I was transitioning between uh, jobs and employment. And I found myself for a year uh, with the Colorado Mountains and... Uh, <laughs> I needed something to challenge me, and that's when I found Leadville. <laughs> well, that's a great thing to challenge in. That's a great introduction for sure. Uh, but before we dig too deep into Leadville, um, let's talk about you and what you have to deal with daily. For our family members that are just meeting you, Jason suffers from tunnel vision. Um, that's a form of degenerative eye condition retinitis i think pigmentosis am i saying that correctly that's right cole it's called retinitis pigmentosa and it's a disease of an of the retina basically we have rods and cones in our retina one perceives light another one really focuses on perceiving color and what happens with my eye disease is um the retina deteriorates over time basically i lose my rod and cone function and pigment little pigment specules uh get built up on my retina so the net result is i end up losing my eyesight peripheral from the outside in and it ends up creating tunnel vision right now i see through kind of like if you held up two um call it toy, toilet paper two cartons mm-hmm. you know, one in front of each eye that's kind of like what my tunnel vision is and what they say what the doctors say is that that goes closes down to straws and pinholes and then nothing well yeah and then that's uh you know a degenerative disease so when did this start for you yeah so for me i was diagnosed at 14 and <laughs> it was actually good to receive that diagnosis i was joking around this weekend with uh, some people I was running with. And, um, you know, before I was diagnosed, Cole, you know, I was like a kid running around. I'd like run into poles and, you know, 
the, uh, another symptom of the disease is severe night blindness. So as a kid, like five, six years old, all the neighborhood kids would go outside and run around and I'd be running into trees or running into the cars. Everybody looked at me like, what are you doing? Like, I, I didn't think anybody saw them. But um, once I got diagnosed with this at 14, I kind of understood better what I was dealing with. And um, yeah, actually, I, I count myself very lucky because I'm 52 years old now. And I think I see, yeah, I, I see decent during the day. Like I see colors and shapes and movement and things like that. I don't see details of people's faces anymore. Um, but I was told when I was 14 that I would have absolutely no light perception by the time I was 30. And I've outdone that by 20 plus years at this point. Well, that's terrifying, of course. And so, yeah, thankfully you're 20 years beyond that. But and that's very interesting that rather than a lull, it kind of gave you a reason for what you were going through. Now, at that time, is that did you have to adjust for success then? Like because they said that about 30, were you already an athlete? Did this change the course of your academics to say, you know, I might need to look at different career paths? What'd that do? Well, I actually did nothing because I, I just, you know, at age 14, I was the type of teenager. I just didn't listen to adults and I didn't listen to this eye doctor. <laughs> and it, it was actually kind of tragic. This is an important part of the story too, especially beyond the local uh, podcast because it, it, it was formidable. So when I was 14, I, I went to this retina specialist and, you know, the, the guy, I go through tons of tests before getting to this final specialist and I'm sitting there. And he tells me I'm going to go blind and nobody in my family had gone to college. And my mom had brainwashed me and my brother. We were going to college. We were getting graduate degrees and education was the way out of the situation that we were in and our family was in. And when this eye doctor asked me what I was going to do, I said, well, I'm going to be a doctor, a lawyer, because at the time, you know, those were the proverbial professional careers. And that's how you, you know, those are respected careers. That's how you found your way out and into a better life. And the eye doctor said, forget about it. You will see nothing by the time you're 30. Learn to do something with your hands. 70% of blind people don't work. If you have any questions, I got five minutes before my next appointment. And yeah, well, I got to tell you, you know, I tell that story to my other friends who have a similar disease. And they're like, I I got like a very similar type of response when I was told that I was going blind or I had this disease. And it was really about, because when you end up at eye doctors, specialists, if they can't quote fix you or give you glasses or something, they don't know what to do. They're just, you know, they yeah, you know, probably should have sent me to a career coach or a life coach or something, <laughs> but that, that wasn't the course of action. And what I ended up doing, Cole was, you know, I just, you know, I, I now knew that I was different. So I started adapting and I, ne- I, I sat in denial really for 30 years. So I should have grieved it. That would have been the healthy way to handle the situation. Instead, I just opted for denial as part of my grieving process. <laughs> okay. And I, I started adapting. Like in school, I couldn't see the chalkboard. I, d- I didn't think anybody could see the chalkboard. So I moved up to the front row and I had all these different strategies. I never w- was able to figure out a way to see the chalkboard. In English class, sometimes the teacher would tell everybody to pull out their books and read for an hour. And I'd look around, I'd see all my you know, fellow students like flipping through the pages like they're reading and I couldn't see what was on the page. I thought everybody was pretending. So I pretended to read during class. Like it was insane. Um, And what I, how I ended up getting through school 
because I didn't tell teachers, I didn't tell anybody. I my stepdad was a lawyer, and we went to Walgreens. I got these little half class readers. I got a magnifying glass. I had four uh, bright lights, desk lamps on my desk, and every night when I came home from school, I would take out my books and with this magnification. I would magnify my books and I would read my books and teach, basically teach myself school at nighttime. And that's how I ended up getting through high school, got through college, got through law school because you know I, I couldn't function in a standard classroom and I wouldn't tell people about it. I, I actually had shame about being different and having this eye disease, as crazy as that sounds. Well, no, I mean, I think that's just natural reaction. It, of course, it sounds crazy to me, but... You know, if you think something's wrong with you, you try to hide it. And, you know, that's just not the case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, now, and during this time, were you also an athlete or did you find athletics later in life? So during high, I was always kind of an an athlete. I was a mediocre athlete, played football, wrestled, played track, um, came to bite me, you know, I, I played one night football game and I was on the kickoff team. I remember, and, you know, the ball got kicked. It was supposed to be kicked to my side of the field. I was going to run down. You know, that's where the ball tier is supposed to be. I was going to tackle him. And the ball was kicked and I ran as, as fast as I could down and there was nobody at that side of the field. And the, the, the kicker had shanked the ball that went to the other side of the field. Well, as soon as the thud happened, I couldn't, I lost the ball going up into the air. I couldn't see it. It was too dark. Uh-huh. And the, the the coach is like screaming at me, Romero, what the hell are you doing? You like, go to the ball. I was like, the ball was supposed to be kicked over here. And he's like, you know, he, Kenny shanked the ball. And uh, I told him, I was like, I, I can't see at night. I have this problem with my eyes. He's like, you're out of night game. You are never playing another night game again. And that was it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was, you know, so I was always going through kind of like adaptations in wrestling. You know, I live in Colorado. We live in Colorado, so it gets darker in the winters. Wrestling is a winter sport. And I used to have a license where I could drive in the daylight, daylight only. But, you know, when athletics happened, I would, you know, drive my car to school in the morning. Then I would run home at night because I wouldn't tell anybody. And I, I couldn't drive at night. It was too dangerous. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, so I just... I did this series of adaptations with whatever I was doing with wrestling. I found a sport where I really didn't need my eyes. I could, you know, focus on proprioceptive awareness and touch and be able to compete well with people there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, so, so that's kind of like the way that, that, that had happened. But my, my running actually began, I was inspired to think of this crazy stuff when my uncle Ted Epstein um, uh, I saw him doing something crazy and I was like in my teens and uncle Ted had been a lawyer and at 50, he just said, forget this. I'm going to be an artist and do endurance sports. <laughs> like, like took a hard left turn. And one, one day I, we, uh, our family had went up to see the CU field house to see uncle Ted in a competitive event. And he had staged his own six day race on a one eighth mile indoor track <laughs> And we saw him on day six. And this is like before, like he was one of the, very, he was one of the very first entrants in the Leadville 100, like a year one or year two. Okay. Like when, yeah. When nobody, you know, when the, the goofs lined up at the. Oh at the yeah. Start. Where everybody was questioning their sanity. Yeah. He was <laughs> one of them. And uh, like, I didn't know that until later in his life. But when I saw that and he, he's went on to do some crazy stuff. Uncle Ted's passed away now, but yeah, he swam, he was the first person to swim across the Bering Strait, swam around Manhattan Island 
did a, no did a Ironman triathlon. Yeah, he, he, dude's incredible. Like the, the stories, this guy is just—it's incredible. But he's the one. When I saw that, because Uncle Ted was nothing exceptional, but obviously there was something exceptional in Uncle Ted. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, and he's the one who inspired me. Actually, when I was in, uh, so that was in my teen years. When I was like twenty-four in law school up in Boulder, I was flipping through Westward, one of our local periodicals that tells us what's going on in Denver oh, during yeah. the week, and. I saw an advertisement for the Denver first Denver International Marathon, and I just signed. I had never ran, you know. I I just signed up. I was like Uncle Ted, you know. I was like, this is, you know, this guy inspired me. And you know, a few months later, I was running it and just about died. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So then, uh, let's fast forward a few years, and and now we're talking Leadville. Um, how many times have you run Leadville? So I've towed the start line six times or yes, start line six times, got to the finish line five times. Okay. Now, and you're okay. Your Leadville Trail 100 run finishes span from 2011 to almost current day or current day. Um, in 2013, I understand your condition accelerated quite a bit. You also finished the race that year, though. So can you tell us um, what that what the new challenges arose that day and how that differed from your your 2011 going of the race? Sure. So actually, in the very first year that I signed up for the lead the one, and I also signed up for lead man. Oh, I figured I'd buy it off plenty. I was like, oh, Leadville 100. And then on your website, it said, you know, if you want a really epic challenge, try Leadman. I was like, shit, <laughs> Leadman. <laughs> so idea, I, I got my, I ate my humble pieces of a uh, humble pie there. And um, what I, I had never been guided before. I had never trail ran. I didn't understand what I needed. And I, I knew that I needed something during the nighttime, but I just kind of hacked my way through, you know, that first race. And as my yeah. eyesight ended up deteriorating and I loved the trails, I realized in order to do this, I need to do something different because with my eyesight, it changes dramatically from going from, from uh, into like a shaded canopy area of the forest versus open, yeah. you know, just fully exposed space. My eyes have severe um you know night blindness so in the shade it's like i'm stepping into a, a black room and then in when it's totally exposed my retinas have light sensitivity too so then i gotta have a this correct sunglass on me like to diffuse the light and let just the right amount in and that changes over time so i'm always changing the, my sunglasses to let more and more light in uh-huh. as the retina deteriorates so in any event make a long story short the adaptations i made was i ended up uh, getting a guide for all of the night sections during the daytime. I basically had involuntary guides. I would grab onto a runner, not literally, but figuratively, <laughs> I would find a runner the same pace and I would just follow their feet relentlessly. I mean, they probably thought I was a stalker, but I'm, I'm pretty sociable. So I'd always chat them up and, you know, kind of just, Hey, is it okay if I run with you? And, you know, they wouldn't realize it, but I was looking at their feet. I would see a person with the correct color shoes with you know the correct socks so that there was contrast with what they were, their feet were doing against the trail whether it was darker or lighter uh-huh. and i would grab onto them basically i would use them to help me move forward i also started using trekking poles 100 percent of the time 
because okay. they give me an extra point of balance in case I'm going down. At nighttime, that's when it really got interesting. I ended up, you know, headlamps and I got reflective strips that I put around my guy's ankles and I always made sure their shoes had reflectors. And my my voluntary guides, which were the nighttime ones, the ones who I had recruited, uh-huh. they basically began doing what I call trail braille. And it's really difficult because running the lead to 100, they basically got to call out everything on the trail. And there's always an impediment. So they're calling out root, you know, root left, rock right, step down, step up, crossing, you know, straight. Yeah. Okay, steady, steady. Uh, you know, high feet, quick feet. You know, if we're going through like a bunch of doll heads, like a, a little scree feel there, you know, doll heads, step up, step up, step up. And uh, it's just a lot of work. And I ended up training these people up because they'd never done it. I'd sure. never done it. Blind people had never done this before. There was no, there was no book. There was no manual. There was no, you know, YouTube on how to do this. So we just kind of hacked our way through it. And I had some really great runners along those times, you know, jump in like, you know, Brandon Stepanowicz. Uh, he's a, you know, he guides blind runners. He's done top 10 at Leadville. You know, just a tremendous dude. But, uh, you know, he helped uh, invent some of his stuff and a lot of my other guides too. Well, that's incredible. And now you talked about, you know, some of your DNF experience in the lead man. Did you attempt any of the, did you get to the point of attempting any of the bike races? So I did, yeah, I got through the marathon. I did the uh, 50 mile bike ride. So you did the silver rush. <laughs> yeah, so- I, did the, I did the 50 mile bike ride and I flipped a bunch of times. I got in like with five minutes to spare um, I did the hundred mile bike that first year, but I got in in 13 hours. Okay. So I was able to finish, but, and they were breaking down the, you know, the, the finish line. And I, I was coming, my mom was running out, like my 70 year old mom was running out to save me on the Leadville 100 bike course. And I was, I was coming in and then at the, um, so I, I was able to get that done, but that was like, you know, and I bike solo. I don't bike on a tandem and on that one too. I did not have a a guide like somebody ahead of me. You know, t- ten years later. Oh, good. Okay. Just, yeah, just to, I mean, that was totally solo. Like I wasn't taking any help. Okay. But, uh, you know, ten years later, I, I smartened up. I was able to actually able to finish Leadman here a few years back. Well, yeah. Not only that, let's uh, you know, let's talk about 2016. You decided your year to take on the Transcon. Uh, that's for, for family members that don't know a run across America and you did this in the sixth fastest time and very close to one of my previous, uh, guests, ultra running legend, Marshall Ulrich, but, but you ran across America in 59 days and, and with this handicap that Marshall's and Marshall and others don't have to deal with, that's what I think is amazing. Uh, for our listeners to summarize, that's a 51.5 mile an hour or miles a day average. And chances are a lot of us listening to this podcast know a lot of people that have run across America. Typically, those that do do so in about 77 days, which is about a, a marathon or less a day. So, and Dean Carnassus even falls into this group. So, you have really gone way beyond with this challenge. I would absolutely love to hear about that experience. So, Cole, you know what's interesting is 
you, you get it. You get the stats. A lot of times when it's stated, you know, you ran across the U.S., that's kind of that's kind of it. And people don't understand because it's so mind-boggling. But when you actually peel back, um, when you go over 50 miles a day across the U.S., that is world class. That is, to, and and the person who taught me that was Marshall Ulrich. Okay, good deal. <laughs> and so before I was like, I kept trying to get a hold of Marsh, and I didn't know him. He actually ended up knowing my uncle Ted, and he had trained with him. So once once I I got Marsh, I mean, it's, it's the greatest story. Like he agreed to have lunch with me. He drove down from Evergreen. He lives in Colorado too. And I remember the day he's like, "I'll go to you." Very kind man. Like he just wants to help. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I'll go to you. I had my mom come, you know, my crew. And all of a sudden my doorbell rings and Marshall Ulrich is standing at my door. Like I'm looking at, like I got, I was shaking. It was like Michael Jordan, was like, <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. know who Marshall Ulrich is. I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. Sorry. I'm nice. like, this dude is actually here. Right. And yeah. uh, so anyway, we, you know, we go to a local restaurant a couple blocks away and, and me and my mom and this other young lady, Carly, we're sitting with Mars and you know, Mars is asking, you know, he's asking some point of question, like, how's your training going? I explained my training. He's like, okay, you know, it seems like you're in shape. He's like, what are you planning on doing? And I just picked a number from out of the air because I have three kids. Like I, when this transcon thing happened to me, I was in a severe depression. I, in 2014, I had stopped working. My eyesight significantly deteriorated. I was, it, it was bad. I, I mean, I was in a severe, severe depression going to counseling and I, I didn't know if I was going to make it out. And this, this run across us was not something like I chose. It was like a calling for me okay. and I just went all in and, but I have three kids and I was going to have to leave my kids to do this. And I, you know, I'm divorced. They go back and forth. And I, I was like 60 days, two months is the longest I could be apart from them. And I did the math. It's roughly 3000 miles across. I was like, that means 50 miles a day or more. And I remember Marsh asked me, well, you know, what's, what's your pace going to be? I was like 50 miles a day. <laughs> and you know, the, all the conversation stopped. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was like, did I say something wrong? And then Marsh went on to teach me. And he told me about the stats of people running across. He's like, yeah, you know, for somebody who's trained 40 miles a day, you know, it's doable. When you get to 50, you're guaranteed injury. That's world class. And only, you know, a handful, you know, single digits had done that before. And he went through and named them. And Marcy is one of those people. And, you know, then I, I remember I left that conversation. I was like, holy crap, you know, what, what did I get myself into? <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, my, you know, I mean, my, Marsh loves to help people when they're setting out to do transcon and he is incredible, but he gave me so much advice. And I remember from the road when I was, you know, suffering, wanting to throw it in, you know, I, I would reach out to him morning, noon, night, he'd be in a different country or something. He'd always <laughs> respond back like within five minutes. It was incredible. And, um, you know, that, that was something else. My, the, the other thing that's really incredible about that story is I had a one person crew, my 70 year old mom, and, and that's most of the time it. When you're doing, yeah, that's it. Oh my god! And w- when you're doing a speed cross, which is that's a speed crossing. Oh yeah, you know, for sure. Fifty miles a day or more, because you don't have time. I mean, people think about you know fifty miles a day. You know, if you're doing a, a relatively quick one, you're shape eight hours. But when you're doing those successively back to back, you're going through deserts over mountains. You get lost, having flat tires. You're going through storms. It stretches out. Some days are quicker. Some days are super long. 
And all that you have time to do really is, you know, run and then recover and then run and recover. And my mom's 70 and, you know, she was having to take care of me, you know, dealing with the van, you know, dealing with not getting killed, crewing me, you know, going in, washing clothes. It was just, it, it was unbelievable. But, you know, you probably get this because you just rattled off all those statistics. We were doing a speed cross on one person crew, 70 years old. And, you know, there's, it's incredible. Sometimes me and my mom talk to each other and we're both like, I, I don't even believe that could have happened unless I was there and experienced it. Like, it, it just doesn't seem like it could happen. Well, yeah. And I mean, I know the statistics, but I know my statistics are, they ended a hundred miles footer, footer bike. Um, I also know another statistic about the transcon. A lot of people, when they finish, hit a deep depression just because you've done all you can do. Um, did that occur with you? Did you have to do anything? Uh, to, was there an emptiness? And if so, how'd you deal with that? Yeah. So with, with me, <laughs> the transcon started with the deepest depression I knew. Yeah. And I felt like it was a calling and I figured if it was a calling, you know, I left Los Angeles when I get to New York, I'm like, heck, if I get to New York and I fulfill this calling and I've been obedient and I've done this, you know, maybe poof, like my eyes will be cured or, you know, I can go back to work and then doing like life as I had done before. When I got to New York, eyes did not get better. They actually got worse over the transcon, you know, drove back here to Denver. I didn't drive back. My mom drove us back and I got back to my house. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I just sat here waiting for that depression to come upon me. It wasn't because of, I'd done all I could do, but it was like, I'd fulfilled this and nothing changed. Well, what happened then Cole was, you know, I started being asked to speak and lo and behold, I mean, my past careers was an attorney and, you know, as a business executive, I used to work for GE and I ran GE capital and, global operations for local fortune 500 company and nonprofit. Well, I saw that as something that was not going to be feasible at the level that I was doing before. And I came back here, all of a sudden companies started asking me to speak and I was like, speak about what? And they're like, tell us the story of your run of <laughs> your life. And that ended up turning me into a keynote speaker. And I ended up writing a book and you know, that's what I currently do. But right after the transcon, you know, it, it was, I was, I was scared. I was going to end up in a severe depression. I wouldn't find my out, way out. And, you know, I might not be talking to you here today, but, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I, I believe there's a higher power and that definitely intersected and divinely intersected, uh, my life with respect to running. I had, um, I had a race that I was going after the year before I took up on my transcon. I tried Spartathlon, DNF to the hundred miles and yeah. I went back, uh, a few months after I finished my transcon DNF Spartathlon again at like 120 miles. And that's a 153 mile race from uh, Athens to Sparta. Uh -huh. And then finally the next year, the third year I went back and I was able to finally finish it. So it kept me running, but um, you know, I, I definitely, it, you know, my transcon was different than it wasn't, it wasn't something like I had on my bucket list or I was wanting to do, frankly, uh -huh. I really didn't, I really didn't want to do it, Cole. It wasn't, you know, I had to leave my kids. I stopped working for a year and a half before. And, you know, I mean, there was, I mean, there was a lot of struggle that went into that in unknown. I was doing it because I thought it was a calling. It wasn't, it wasn't like this holy grail thing that I wanted to do. Right. So, okay. 
Yeah, it was a little different for me. Well, now, and then you mentioned your writing and, and your book after the Transcon, uh, Running Into the Darkness. Can you yeah. tell us about that book, uh, what our readers can ex- or what our listeners can expect and where our, our Leadville family can find it? Sure. So it's easily available on Amazon or it's, 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 and you can order it through bookstores, Barnes and Noble, that type of thing, Target, Walmart, you know, if, uh, if you have a coupon or something like that, I don't, I don't think they stock it on the shelves, but Amazon's the quickest way to get a hold of that. And what it ends up, what it ended up being was the way that it, it it's a memoir and it tracks, uh, the run across the U S part one is like, who, who am I? Who's the character? Part two is the, the training and, and getting prepping for the transcon. And then part three is really the transcon run. And what it ends up being is not just that story. I call it like, you know, a love story, a story of struggle and triumph. I think that's okay. why a lot of readers can really relate to it because, you know, my, my blindness or my depression or my, you know, whatever my struggle is that I, I was extremely vulnerable in that book. People can relate to it. Everybody has their struggle, Cole. Every, every, any listeners listening to this has a struggle that they're working through, that they've gotten through. And that's what I think makes it really real. How the book started was I started doing these keynotes. And after a while, like I was on some pretty big stages and I would have people always come up to me afterward and say, you know, where's your book? I was like, I don't have a book. Like every speaker has a book. (laughs) And um, my kids would take me a lot of times to these you know, to help me navigate around and work with people because I just don't see. And um, my kids, sometimes after they'd hear me speak, they would tell me, you know, Dad, I didn't know that that happened in your life. And what I realized was my kids did not know the full story of how I got to this place. And if something happened to me, I wanted them to know the full story. So I sat down and I started writing a journal to my kids. And my plan was to write my life story you know, go to Office Depot, spiral bind it, and make copies. And my kids, I have special boxes for them where I put memories in there. Uh-huh. I was going to put a spiral-bound copy of my story into that box. I figured when I died, you know, the kids would be flipping through at some point in time, and they'd read the story, right? Yeah. And um, as it got further and further along, my oldest, who's a really good writer, great creative, creatively, you know, she read some of that. She's like, Dad, you got to publish this. I was like, no way, dude. I was like, this is a journal. <laughs> way too personal. Yeah, I'm not putting it out there. And then I realized I'm not John Grisham. It's not like, you know, the whole world's going to read my book, you know? I mean, you know, like there's two readers who go to Amazon or looking for sleeping pills. Instead, my book pops up. You know, they'll, they'll get a read. <laughs> um, but anyway, that, I ended up publishing it. And that's what it really ended up. That's the way it started was a journal to my kids. And it is very vulnerable and uh, it tells the entire story. And, you know, people, it's a, it's a long book too. I didn't realize it's like almost 400 pages. Okay. Kind that of, is long. Dude, Cole, I, I like in my <laughs> lifetime, I think I've read like five or six books cover to cover. Like I get bored <laughs> too quick. And then, you know, I wrote this thing. I was like, wow, like, <laughs> that was, that was probably another divinely inspired thing. Cause I, me, Jason Romero, you know, you know, dopey <laughs> runner, you know, you, you know, like, Anybody's out there doing the Leadville 100, we're a little quirky. You know, we got <laughs> For a sure. Loose. Yeah, but, uh, you know, that ended up getting out there. And, you know, you know what's really nice about that too, Cole? I never realized this, but I put it out there. And, you know, at the beginning when you launch a book, it gets picked up. But uh, as time goes on, you know, the, the readership sloughs off. But once in a while, I will get an email from somebody like in Ireland or India or New Zealand 
And they'll say, I just finished reading your book and it really impacted me. And that's what I think about. I'm like, if, if that story can help one person as they're getting through something, mm-hmm. it matters. And, you know, that's the way I look at that. And, you know, anything else that I put out there, you know, my YouTube channel is kind of funny because I have like, you know, 200 subscribers or something. My daughter has like 200,000 <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, my videos get like five views or something like that, but I get the, different people find me different ways. Like I speak to schools in Pakistan because they found me on YouTube. Like they're one of those five people that, that saw this video. I mean, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's encouraging. It's just like, you got to put things out there because you, you never know what the ripple effect of your life is going to be. Like you can drop yeah. that pebble in the pond you're never going to see where your ripples go to or how they intersect other folks. And you don't need to. That's the beautiful thing in life when you're doing it the right way. You just do the right thing because it's the right thing. And it, right. And it has an impact. And you know, I got to believe that. Well, that's that's great. Um, and, and speaking of impact and, and going forward, um, one thing I really admire, in 2018 and 19, you do return to Leadville. But in 2019, you're 49, you've got more challenges than you've ever had. And that's when you set your PR with a time of 26.02. I mean, you bested with a lot worse sight condition your time by two hours and 50 minutes. How did you do this with more limitations than when you first started your Leadville Trail 100 journey? Well, just to note that... I failed at that. I failed on that because I was aiming at that big buckle goal. Well, me too. I still don't have one either. (laughs) (laughs) I was aiming for the big buckle and training was on. I knew the course. You have to think memorized. And, um, you know, what I ended up doing was basically what ended up happening, you know, because my, my fitness level always is pretty dang good but when you're executing a hundred mile race there's so many different possibilities you know there's like a thousand different binary yes no decisions that you make and sometimes they come back to bite you i've had i've I've been bit my fair share but this one you know my race execution was good and i was adapting and i wasn't taking any chances with my eyesight basically I ended up getting a guide for the last 60 miles. And it was a, it was a guy who could actually do it. Brandon Stepanowicz was the guy. And he had just finished doing the Colorado trail that year or yeah, the, the year before that actually. Okay. But uh, you know, he's done some amazing stuff. He was trained up and you know, he could run, he could guide me for 60 miles. And for a guide to guide me, they usually have to be about 25% fitter than I am because they need to be concentrating on all of the different you know, obstacles and calling things out. Mm -hmm. And when you, you know, it's a lot of effort. Like if you're talking for 60 miles on the Leadville 100 race course and, you know, (laughs) a double cross of Hope Pass talking, that's extremely difficult. And then going through the night, but this guy was able to do that. So, you know, I had that built in, had the crew nonstop. You know, I had ran sections of the course before. And, um, you know, it was the, the, I was moving. And, uh, Mm -hmm. but still what ended up happening was, when I got the power line inbound, I was climbing and I climbed it quicker than I had, had ever had. But at the top, there's doll heads crossing there. And that just ground me to oh. like I was trying to run over them and I was falling, tripping and it was a disaster. And then, uh, you know, you get to Hagerman Road coming down to where you have that little cutoff, that two and a half mile stretch. And that just that ended it. Like those two sections uh-huh. put an extra hour back on me. 
And, uh, you know, that was, that, that was that, but it, you know, what you end up doing is you just adapt, you know, even more. I had more Trekkie, everything that we had all, that we had, um, stumbled on previously, we added back into the program. And by that point in time, you know, with respect to the visual aspect of it, you know, I had that pretty much, you know, that, that was at a hundred percent. I think we had every single uh, possibility or, or problem that we could have had, you know, there were, I had the brightest headlamps. I had like this 5,000 lumen headlamp from <laughs> Lupine. I mean, it's a German made thing. It's incredible. It you know, makes it like daylight because my eyes had gotten worse. The night was worse, but I compensate with even a brighter light system. And, um, you know, with poles, I had, you know, black diamond, you know, ultra, you know, Z pole carbon and, you know, I, all the reflectors had the best guide that I could, you know, possibly get. But uh, anyway, it still ended up coming up, quote, short. But I, I never call any finish at, at level or any 100 miler uh, a failure. Even getting to the start line, you know, you succeeded by just getting to the start line. Heck. Oh, for sure. And I mean, dropping two hours and 50 minutes off your best time. I'd still call that a big success also. Yeah, it was it was good. It was a good run. Now, and then are, are there a lot of differences you have to make when you're doing 100 as opposed to, say, the transcon? How, how's that relatability? Uh, is, is there any similarity? or? Yeah, so there's I, the, the eyesight thing is always something that has to be taken into account. Maybe it's second nature for me now because it's just how I have to do it. Uh-huh. You know, with transcon, the the most difficult thing and dangerous part is the cars because you can die and people have died trying to cross the U.S. on foot. And uh, every person I've talked to who's ever transcon, there's always a couple boneheads that try to run you down. You're usually running in the breakdown lane. And, um, you know, Mars told me about that when he was, he used to run with traffic during the beginnings of his transcon. And then people, a lot of times on the highway, they'll, instead of, instead of passing people on the left, like we, like people drive in the U S sometimes, you know, both those, everything will be blocked up. So the person will choose to pass the car in the shoulder on the breakdown lane. Well, there was one time Marsh was running right on that line and the car pulled up, you know, there was a car to Marsh's left. Another car was trying to pass that car in the breakdown line. He was sandwiched and he's like, I was like one foot either side from dying. Like, and it would, they were highway speeds. They're going like 80 miles an hour. And, uh, ever since then, he's like, you need to run against traffic. Cause at least then you got a chance to jump off. I mean, at least you can take some type of action. Right. And, um, you know, that's, you know, and, and the, the other thing too is like on transcon you know, on those little small roads, some folks are moving some very large things. Like, I don't know if they're moving like satellites or rockets, but, <laughs> You know, there's these huge things that with like wings that like uh, extend off over the shoulder. Like I almost got cut in half one time or, you know, know, like like you see, there's this truck that's like going up front. It's honking. There's all these flashes. I was like, oh, it must be an ambulance. No, it's not an ambulance. And then all of a sudden this big wide load overload thing comes like, holy cow, you know, drops straight to the ground. So it doesn't, you know, whack you. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot, you know, you get chased by animals and <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. Leadville's a lot tamer than Transcon. 
Well, geez, I mean, I, you you think it, you would think so when you really think about it, and then you think, well, no, the ones in the woods, but you don't think all those crossings of woods to city and everything you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, and just to add in another challenge, you're also a bad water finisher. Um, what ch- what challenges does that create that the other two didn't create? Uh, you know, I I actually like the heat. And uh, I like to, I run road, trail, heat, cold, whatever. Um, Badwater was, was actually really nice because it's run on paved road. And generally for most of the course, I'd say about 90% of the course, there's a white line. Yeah. A very visible white line. And I can follow white lines like all day, all night long independently. So that worked, you know, very well for me. You know, Badwater, it was like 120 when I was out there. So, you know. Running 135 miles in 120 degree heat, it just knocks on your ass. <laughs> so, so uh, I don't know that there's anything special about it. It's just uh, kind of like running, you know, learning to to train in heat with respect to my eyes. You know, I had guys I I learned from all my years at Leadville, and you know, I was overly prepared. Leadville has overly prepared me for how to run. I think with a visual disability uh-huh. more than any other race because just the course is so dang challenging. And then add in there, you know, all, you know, just the technical terrain and, and different aspects that you're going through with respect to having a visual impairment. But when, once I got the bad water, I think I pretty much had all that mastered. What it really was, it was the heat and how to keep keep moving. And, and for me, the biggest part was to be able to run when you're hot and overheated. And there I learned, you know, I use this, uh, what's called a cool-off bandana. Mm-hmm. It's actually a product. Yeah, they have like a little... Uh, chamois inside of a regular bandana you load it with ice wrapped around your neck and it keeps my carotid arteries cold and then i always have you know the greatest hat i think uh you know like desert running hat or one with the drape is an outdoor research because it can the little yeah the drape can button off and it's super light and breathable but i load that thing with ice i have my outdoor research i have light colored clothes you know not like you're not wearing black in the desert when it's 120 degrees and um you know you just move on that white line. You have your all day pace. And, you know, I do like, a, I did a lot of training in saunas and steam rooms and you know, I'd run around Denver, you know, we'd have like 90 degree days. And I'd load up with my sweat bags, like the old wrestling days and parkas and wool hats, wool coats, <laughs> you know, just try to overheat, just try to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not hard to do. And you must've done a good job because you walked away successful. Yeah. Uh, um, now, one of the bigger reasons why I have you here today, and there's a building theme here, uh, I'm sure they kind of all culminate together. In 2019, you release another book, The Success Cycle. I feel this book is similar in tone to what my dad and I are talking about when we're talking to our family members before that run, um, particularly before those 100-mile events. Tell us more about the success cycle, the message it contains, and where our family members can find that one. It's it's the exact message that your dad and you deliver to the world. You know, you're better than you think you are, and you can do more than think you, you think you can. It's just another way of of saying that. Um, so the success cycle it's available on Amazon. That's the easiest way to get it, and um, it's a it's a short book. And the way that this it's a step-by-step process for how, quote, success 
happens. And let me back up for a second because it's not like a Tony Robbins thing or something like that or you know whatever. And frankly, Cole, like I gotta tell you, with respect to this book, I think it'll probably I think it's brilliant. I believe it is brilliant. Like I can't believe it came from me. I'm not brilliant, but what's in there is like it's brilliant. Um, it when when I got off the stage, you know, talking. A lot of times people ask me like, "How did you do that?" And to me, I'm like, "You just don't quit." Right. It's like it's like when I finished I finished Lead Man, and I I had maybe like 20 minutes to spare on the hundred, and your dad was there, Ken. <laughs> I think everybody listening knows Ken. That's and true. you know, I got he hugged me, and I've never been hugged and felt so safe in my life. Like those big old arms came around, like holy cow. He's like, I knew you'd do it, Jason. I was like, how did you know? Like I quit. I had questioned it several times. He's like, because you just don't quit. And that what he said there resonated so much because when other people have asked me like how do you do how do you do that like how do you turn around a business or how do you run across the u.s or how do you like do these different things that seem so difficult to me i'm like you just don't quit but i realize with people it doesn't resonate a lot of times you got to break that down into smaller step-by-step processes and then i reach Mm. back to my my career at ge and when you work with huge teams and you try to explain to people how something occurs you create a process map well that was kind of what happened with this book. I was like, what is the process for how you get from point A to point B? Like a dream that's intangible you're just thinking about, how do you transform that into something that's real? And what I realized, Cole, was I use the exact same process. It doesn't matter if I was trying to deal with my eye disease and you know get through school and graduate, and be, get through law school and become a lawyer, or mm-hmm. you'll go to GE, do it like a turnaround for a, you know, a division of it in Puerto Rico, or you know, become a Paralympian or, you know, do records or finish these races or stuff like that. It's the same dang process. And so the the starting point though, is really about how we look at success. And what I believe is success is not linear. It's not like you go from point A to point B, like a 50 yard dash, you know, here's a start line, 50 yards down the way is the finish line. You'll go from point A to point B, you get there, you know, and you're a success. If you trip and fall and twist your ankle, you don't get there, you're, you failed. That's not the case because failure is part of succeeding. And that's what I realized in setting out to do some of this huge monumental stuff. Failure is part of the process of success and success, I believe is cyclical. You know, Albert Einstein's quote is saying failure is just success in progress. Thomas Edison mm-hmm. said, you know, I failed 10,000 times before I succeeded once. <laughs> you know, think about Olympic gold medalists. How many times do you think they became a world champion? Like they failed a gazillion times and that's part of the process of how success happens. And I got to tell you, you know, it's kind of interesting with this book because it's not one that's flying off the shelves, but what I do is as I encounter different people and I get asked that question now, I hand them this book. I'm like, it's all right here. Let me take like page 143 is where it's spelled out like on one page, the graphic. And um, just as a matter of fact, tomorrow I'm meeting with a person who signed up to do the Leadville 100 this year, and they're having problems with their training plan, and they're right in the middle of this success cycle process, and they're struggling with some different stuff. And I'm gonna take the guy through it. Awesome. Um, and and it helps. And the other thing it really helps with too is youth. Um, you know, youth who who kind of have not set out and done stuff. I think once we kind of do some stuff and we've experienced success, we can kind of hack our ways our, our way through it. And that was my case too. But when we go after something extremely challenging, difficult, or get stuck in a rut, 
I think that's where a lot of people end up finding value, you know, in the book that I wrote, the success cycle. So it may not be for the masses, you know, if people kind of like have their stuff together, but if they get stuck in a rut or if they're going to transcon or, you know, Leadville 100, you know, there, there's, I think there's some brilliance in there that it can help some folks. Oh, I think for all of our listeners, it's probably a good tool. I mean, you know, when you're sitting in that auditorium and you look left and you look right and you look center, only one is going to be successful. And, you know, you really forget, or I forget, because I was raised by my mind and daddy with your same values, one foot in front of the other, keep going, don't quit. But that really is something a lot of people may not know how they I, I believe a lot more people have it than show it i yeah. don't believe they know how to dig it out of themselves yeah. and sometimes well, uh, it takes a lifetime that's right that's right and uh, you know a, a big piece of this call a big piece of quote success and you know i'm not saying success is like richness or money or whatever but six i i believe success is a verb and when you set out as soon as a person signs up for leadville and they start that training process, process, they are succeeding. Like that's, it, it's a cycle. Accomplishment is part of succeeding and success, but they are succeeding when they tow that start line. They are succeeding when they're going through checkpoint one, checkpoint two, hit Winfield, you know, turn around, come back, go past. You know, they are succeeding even if they bail out. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've met that are like on their year seven or year eight. They keep going back to Leadville trying to finish. Right. I mean, that's a seven or seven or eight year success. You know, I think about Spartathlon. It took me three years to get to the finish line. That was three years of succeeding. I just ended up failing a bunch of times in the process. And um, you know, it's it, it it's important. And whether the other thing that's important too is that at least the message is out there. And I encourage you and your family to put out there, you know, your wisdom and knowledge on this because it's one of those other things too. Like you know, when the student is re- it's when the student is ready, the master will appear. And there's multiple people that have said probably the same stuff that I'm saying in the success cycle, or it's you know a different mm-hmm. way of, of verbalizing or articulating the concept, but different people, not, I won't encounter everybody and I may not encounter them at the right time. It, you know, and I've learned from everybody else too. And, you know, nobody knows everything. Everybody knows something. So there's right. something in there that can resonate with, uh, with, with folks. But in any event, I, pr- I appreciate you giving me like a little bit of time to talk about the success cycle because it is something I'm very, very excited about, and you know, I, I I love to I love to share it. Well, for sure, I, you know I think all these lessons tie together. That you know that we're trying to do the same thing. We want you to take that success you saw on the race course and bottle it up and take it home, and that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, you know, it's just, it's been my whole drive driving lesson to life. Now, speaking of uh, lessons, what, what are some other lessons you've learned out there on that Leadville course? Uh, if we're not contributing to others, we're not running our best race. And I gotta tell you, there, there've been multiple times out there that, you know, uh, I've come across a runner who's twisted their ankle or, you know, having a rough time and we stop our race to help another person. Uh, it's not, you, you don't run on by and, you know, <laughs> wish them luck or just, you know, uh, it's not a selfish pursuit. 
um, you know, you, you may end up giving up your race to make sure another person's a person, another person is safe. And that's not truly giving up your, their, your race. That's participating in, in, in this wonderful thing called life. And I think that's the, you know, that's probably most important lesson that Leadville has taught me because I, I would have never gotten through any of this without the help and support of others. It's not a, an individual thing. And that's just a larger metaphor for, for life. We, we, you know, life is very difficult to get through as Leadville is. And if we're not doing it together, we're not doing it the right way. You know, uh, you know, a runner with his, with his or her crew at Leadville, you know, the entire group either gets that buckle or doesn't get that buckle. Um, because you know, it's a, it's a, it's a team event just like life is. And, uh, that's, you know, that's so important to me. Um, one other, if I can, can I do a plug for one other thing? Absolutely. So one other thing that's really important to me, it's right along these lines of contribute, which is, uh, during this COVID time period, you know, I was just struggling with how can I contribute? Because a lot of what I do is around people, all the people events that shut down, so I decided to start a nonprofit and it's called Inspire Connection. And you can find it online at inspireconnection.org. And the concept is to put uh, stories, inspiring stories of struggle and triumph in front of youth. And as I have gone around and talked about stories, I can't tell you how many people come to me and talk to me about, gosh, you know, I was homeless as a kid or, you know, I was abused or I was in the foster care system or I dropped out of high school or you know, I was suicidal or, you know, there's just so many stories, but this person who comes up to talk to me, Cole, looks all put together, right? right? And that's the way we do it. But everybody has a story of struggle. And what I have found with youth these days, because I do a lot of speaking at schools, that's like my philanthropy. I talk to schools free of charge. Uh, but these kids are more isolated than ever, and they need to hear these stories. They can't just see all this social media it all, you know, everybody's perfect. Everybody has their perfect smiles, perfect teeth. You know, everybody's happy, go lucky. They're struggling and we are struggling. So the idea is to train up speakers and put them in front of these kids, you know, these inspiring stories of struggle and triumph. And that's been something that's been a passion of mine. Yeah, I have people <laughs> from all over the place. And actually now with COVID having happened, I'm able to deliver these stories to different classrooms all over the world. And that's been really exciting. The other thing that's part of this Inspire Connection uh, effort, nonprofit, is I developed a skater program. And that was inspired by my youngest daughter who taught herself to skate two years ago. And I never understood what skateboarding was. I never really participated in it. I know that you have. <laughs> but, yes. uh, you know, skateboarding is a tremendous sport. The athleticism involved is incredible. But the other thing with skateboarding is it forces you to confront and put adversity right in front of you. And it forces you to fail time and time again and exercise resilience over and over again until finally you can accomplish what you set out to do. That trick, that kickflip, that ollie, that, you know, whatever you may be going after. And the, when you fail there, it's not failure. Like it just hurts your ego. It hurts your body. Like you get scraped up, you have concussions, broken bones, twisted ankles, mm -hmm. it roughs you up and you got to do it over and over and over again. And what I've seen also with skateboarding is a lot of kids find their way there, uh, who may not be having, you know, the, the conventional, 
uh, life. They may be taking an unconventional path. And those are kids that kind of get, you know, left, um, you know, the, the resources are not dedicated there. So mm-hmm. we have a inspire connection delivers inspiring stories to, to youth. And we also provide skating equipment, uh, to youth, uh, who need the equipment as well. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the larger piece and the, the plug. I appreciate the time, uh, and the effort to be able to do that call. Thanks. Well, no, I, we absolutely love that. I, like you said, I'm a skater myself and love that mission too. Uh, you know, my dad feels a lot like you. He always says a purpose of life's life, life of purpose. And uh, that's why he's helping our youth in, in Leadville and Lake County. And uh, we just couldn't agree with you more and, and can't commend those efforts enough. And anything we can do to highlight that sort of thing, by God, it, it benefits us all for sure. Uh, I think you're really on to something about talking about these kids today. I've spent the last decade working in social media, and boy, can I relate to those struggles you're talking about. That's a, a pretty sensitive area to me. And then, yes, you, you, you do kind of forget that, hey, that kid just sees this guy, Jason, run across the finish line. He doesn't know what went into that. So, no, that's great to, to put a better perspective on that for sure. Um, now, that kind of ties into to, to my next question. What do you think of when you hear the word Leadville? <laughs> Home. <laughs> I love Home. that. That's that's the yeah. best answer you can give. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's so, I get so tickled and i i use it sparingly though cole and in specific circumstances because you know leadville became you know after born to run and a lot of people you know that kind of sparked a movement in ultra but a lot of people kind of started putting leadville on a bucket list and and there was a different you know there was a little bit different like sometimes people set out to conquer something not to be not to grow through it be changed by it and you know, when I can have a deeper conversation where I feel like I can have that conversation, or at least when it's not going to be superficial, like, you know, Leadville something to be conquered, you know, get my buckle and, you know, move on to something else because it's not, it's, it's family. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had a long relationship with your father and it was scary at the beginning. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I was really scared of Ken. Me and, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, I, I tell you now, like I feel love by Ken and, you know, I don't, you know, I, I think he knows who I am, but. Oh, he does he, for sure. He's a yeah, big fan. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but that like the relate, what can happen when you, when you, when you experience something and the love that happens, you know, it's a, it's, it's totally different. You know, I, I've run a, a ton of different hundred mile races or different things. And, you know, race directors, you know, they come and go and, and I'm kind of like notoriety a little bit, you know, the blind guy who's doing mm-hmm. endurance stuff. So, you know, they may know by the blinds, but they don't know you or who you are. And that's, that's, what's different with Leadville. It really is home. And that's, you know, that's when you go home, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I don't do the race every year, but I yearn and every, every year when it's Leadville and I'm not there, you know, a, a piece of me is, well, that, and, uh, that, there's not many, there's not many things in life I can say that about, but it, it definitely has affected me and it has changed me for the better. Well, that's perfectly said. Um, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been so much fun. 
Uh, it's been a joy catching up with you. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to share with your Leadville family? I just want to. I just want to copycat what 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 y'all say. You're better than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can. And I, thank you, Leadville, for teaching me that. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jason. All right, cool. Have a great one. You too. Well, Leadville family, we used to make our living by trying to get you all to come to our beautiful community and spend your dollars. That way we could share our beautiful community with you. Today, we feel like we make our living by changing lives. We do so by teaching people to dig deep, that they have an inexhaustible well full of grit, guts, and determination. And in order to take advantage of that, all you got to do is dig down and believe. Well, Jason Romero is great proof that we are not alone in thinking this same message. Jason also now makes a living at doing this very same thing, and he does it in an amazing way. I challenge you to dig into all of Jason's resources, read his books. They will inspire you, they will get you to that line, and they too will help you get to whatever red carpet it is in your life. Thank you for tuning in. Please don't forget to give us a like and subscribe wherever you're getting your podcasts, and we cannot wait to see you at home. We can't wait to see you in Leadville.